I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, the feeling of joy and how the most everyday and sometimes sad experiences can bring unexpected delight. Pick up basketball where a handful of people come together at a court that no one owns and negotiate the ways that they're going to play together. There are all of these rules that are not really written down, that are understood, which is that we're going to figure out how to be together. And later, how a son connects with his dying father and discovers the essential ties between joy and sorrow. And my father, who, like so many people, lived a fairly alienated life, a life separated from whatever you'd call it, just say connection that toward the end of his life, he was really wanting to know who he was connected to, who he did belong to. That's so moving to me. Poet and essayist Ross Gay ponders his sources of joy, from caring for his father to skateboarding, gardening, and playing pickup basketball. That's all coming up on Life Examined. At a time when so many around the globe face daily hardships, it may seem slightly trivial to focus a discussion around joy. But joy is perhaps what sustains us. It's what puts a smile on our faces, connects us with each other, and helps us to see life from a brighter, more positive perspective. Material goods or money are not a prerequisite, as joy is often found at the least expected times and in the most unanticipated places. So how do we embrace joy? Especially when faced with disappointment, hardship, or sadness, is it possible to capture and keep that feeling? How do we incite joy within ourselves? In his collection of essays and poems, Inciting Joy, author Ross Gay ponders the kinds of experiences that have touched his life and brought him joy, from pickup basketball games and skateboarding to fighting injustice and caring for his father. Gay explains the many ways that joy and sorrow are deeply intertwined. Joining me now for the full hour is Ross Gay, poet, essayist, and professor of English at Indiana University. Roske, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Good to be with you. Uh, I'd love to uh, start with a reading uh, as a, perhaps a way to frame how we can talk about the, this great book and this idea of joy. So um, tell us what you're going to read from. Well, I'm going to read from this um, kind of introductory chapter. And in that chapter, I'm sort of like, in a way, I'm sort of um, explaining maybe one of the... Um, one of the reasons that I wrote this book, which was sort of to offer a response to, to, you know, some people who say that joy maybe isn't serious or mm. it maybe isn't worthy of our um, most rigorous study. I sort of, I, I want to respond to that and say, well, yeah, it is. And then I kind of define, offer a kind of definition of joy, which the book kind of goes through and kind of continues trying to search for. And I'll just say that that, that definition is something along the lines of um, what radiates from us when we help each other carry our sorrows. And then, and then I have this. There's also a dance party at the, in the, at the <laughs> beginning. <laughs> but, but then there's this. Now that we've defined joy and concluded it is important, there are two guiding inquiries in this book. First, I mean to investigate what practices, habits, rituals, understandings, you know, the stuff we do and think and believe, make joy more available to us? What in our lives prepares the ground for joy? I mean to try to find out, in other words, what incites joy. And second, I intend to wonder what the feeling of joy makes us do, or how it makes us be. I will wonder how joy makes us act and feel. That's to say, I wonder what joy incites. For the first question, what incites joy? 
This book is a profoundly incomplete effort. And though I talk about pickup basketball and skateboarding and school and time and gardening and Luther Vandross's cover of the Dion Warwick hit, A House Is Not A Home, I thought about but did not have time to dig all the way into joy and in architecture or joy and sex or joy in the amateur or joy in play or memory or foraging or parenting or libraries, etc. I offer them to you. For the second question, what does joy incite? I should say I have a hunch and it's why I think this discussion of joy is so important. My hunch is that joy is an ember for or precursor to wild and unpredictable and transgressive and unboundaried solidarity, and that that, and that that solidarity might incite further joy, which might incite further solidarity, and on and on. My hunch is that joy, emerging from our common sorrow, which does not necessarily mean we have the same sorrows, but that we in common sorrow, might draw us together. It might depolarize us, and de-atomize us enough that we can consider what, in common, we love. And though attending to what we hate in common is too often all the rage, and it happens also to be very big business, noticing what we love in common and studying that might help us survive. It's why I think of joy, which gets us to love, as a practice of survival. And it's why I've written this book. What a great beginning. And there are so many things in there I, I'm excited to explore with you. And one of the first things you said was that some people questioned whether or not joy was even something fit for inquiry. Is that even serious enough for us to want to consider? So talk to me about that. It seems like it's something you heard. Yeah, it's totally. Um you know, I'm lucky in that I have, uh, I've been having a lot of conversations about joy, in part because, you know, in uh, two books of poems ago, I have a book called Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. And then the book after that was called The Book of Delight. So, mm. you know, I'm sort of contending with these overlapping questions a lot. And a, a, fairly, a fairly common question um, is like I said, is sort of like, do you think, you know, at a time like this is often <laughs> the sort of mm. in brackets, um, it's it's appropriate or reasonable to be talking about or thinking about joy. And um, and what is especially heartbreaking to me is when, you know, because I I'm lucky enough to get to talk to students a lot. And when young folks are like, I've, you know, I've been under the impression that joy is not serious and you can't you can't really you know be a writer and talk about joy and i suppose people are making the comparison to what life feels like now political mistrust hate racial violence um what can feel like pretty dark times that we're living in now well i mean and, that, and that's sort of the thing like <laughs> you know it it's uh it seems like it's always it's always tough times. Yeah, um, first of all, and um, <laughs> and it also feels like if you have a definition of joy that is something like um, closer to like um, well, you know, if joy is something about you get by cleaning your closets or like buying your Tesla, mm. then that okay, but that's not actually joy as far as I'm concerned. Joy is precisely that which difficulty requires us to 
Um, no, joy is what emerges from the difficulty, from our tending to one another through the difficulty, you know, making it possible to survive the difficulty. Joy emerges from that. So in a way, it's sort of like the question emerges from what I consider a misunderstanding of joy itself. Mm. Yeah, you almost talk about the, the alternate definition, which I think maybe is more commonly um, subscribed to, which is maybe more of a, a childlike version of joy, which is going up into, you, you use this idea of like going up to this nice room at the top of the house and the sun is on your face and there's a pretty song in the background and you feel yummy inside and everything yeah. is, you know, everything is just very nice and you feel yeah. happy, right? That's the kind of other version of joy you talk about. Totally, totally, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, and that's sort of like this this aspirational thing where, where in fact, you know, you're, you know, um, you know, this place where everyone you love is not in fact in the process of dying, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like, oh, uh, that's, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, yeah, childlike, you know, and, and well, no, childish, you know, because I think childlike sort of has a, a kind of wonder that overlaps more with joy, but childish, meaning immature, you know, meaning like sort of incapable of contending with the fact of our lives, which is that things change, which is that we are here and then we are not, which is that, you know, pain is a part of, of the existence. Mm. So then so then talk about, you know, which you just did in the introduction, but I think about this this linkage between between joy and solitude or joy and sorrow. Say say more about that. Zadie Smith in her essay, she has a, an essay, Joy, that's really, a, you know, really one of the um, inspirations, actually, for this inquiry, is she has an essay, and in this essay, Joy, she talks about, um, first of all, that she's, you know, she's had like a handful of experiences of joy, and she's like, that's enough, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's kind of overwhelming. And then she also says that joy, um, in some way, she says that joy emerges from what is intolerable. And that to me feels like the kind of definition that I um, that I'm sort of interested in in hang around, hanging around with. And so when I say that joy and sorrow are linked, I mean that joy is that which joy is not that which you know you you feel because you know. And I'm not that I don't want to be prescriptive either, but but. I think we might be under the impression, like I said, that joy is something that you feel because you accomplished something or you got like a, you know, you got a sticker on your on your report or something. Mm. But I'm sort of suggesting that joy is actually um, the feeling that emanates when we figure out how to tend to one another through our through our sorrows, which are immense and they do not go away and they do not and they do not cease. That's the other thing, you know, that we don't get out of sorrow. To get out of sorrow is to get out of life. You know, it's kind of this dream of purity that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, you know, in that room at the top of the house with the clean, you know, the the clean floors and it's all light and you know everything is comfortable and you know nary a, a difficult thing comes through. That's not real. It's just not a real thing. And so my question is, how do we, in the midst of of our difficulties, in the midst of our profound and abiding sorrows, care for one another and the caring for one another and what emanates from that, you know, I think it's, I think it's what, what I'm thinking of is joy. Mm. 
Well, maybe you can talk to me then about your your personal journey with this word and your 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 attempts at defining it through writing and through life experience. I mean, even at the top of the book, for example, you start with some some tough stuff like the diagnosis of cancer in your father. Yeah, that's like one of these. Um, the first essay in the book is is me sort of re. Um, in a way, in telling the story of my father's death. And my father died of liver cancer um, in 2004, you know, it's almost two decades ago now. Mm. Um, and I sort of like trying to understand, um, remember, like put it back together, both the experience of, of caring for my father as he was dying. It was about five or six months um, that he that he lived after his diagnosis. But also in the process of um, thinking about that, trying also to think about how our relationship, which was a, a full and complicated and loving and you know pretty difficult <laughs> relationship, in some kind of way, um, got cared for. You know, like the fact that I was able to you know move into my dad's house and sort of be with him in, in his dying, though we never talked about the fact that he was dying. Mm. He was dying. Um, the fact that I was able to do that and that he let me do that and, and invited it, it completely changed our relationship. It completely changed our relationship. But, you know, it was also sort of a, you know, it's a, a profoundly um, difficult and beautiful experience. Mm. It's incredible how the, the presence of death can, can force this um this kind of wondrous return of relationships or this healing when one knows there's suddenly a, a potential expiration. I, I find that story always to be so moving. Me too. Me too. And it's just like the, it's just one of these sort of, um, in a way, I, I suspect maybe that part of this practice I'm talking, and I talk about joy as a practice, you know, and part of that practice is to be always alert to the fact that not only that if you scratch the surface of someone else a tiny bit, you will find that, you know, they are suffering mm. as, as despite any kind of performance to the contrary, they are suffering, they have pain, they have sorrow. Um, but also that we're, we have this thing in common and we're dying, yeah. you know, some of us sooner than others, some of us differently than others. Um, and, but, but we have that in common and that, feels like a substantial thing <laughs> to have in common. Yeah. That we're dying together and then on the other side, that we love together, even if we don't love the same things mm. that we love, you know? Yeah, that, that idea of, of scratching the surface of someone. I remember that there was a really great psychologist, Irvin Yalom, who wrote this book about kind of a his life of being a therapist and what he's observed in human nature. And, and one of the points he made in the book that I'll never forget is that no matter who walked in the door from, you know, uh, someone who appeared to be incredibly successful and wealthy to somebody living um, maybe the opposite of that life, whoever they were, once you scratch the surface, you, he always found that every person feels a little bit more lonely than you mm -hmm. think they do. There's maybe a little bit more sadness there than you might have imagined when you looked at them just as their exterior. And I always found that to be kind of a both sad but touching realization that this is something we all share. Totally. I mean, I, lo I love that so much. You know, just like if we, if we 
which is not easy to do, but but if we, it's a practice, you know, and we sort of help each other do it. If we were to be just cognizant and and like a little like a little bird um, inside of us when we approach everyone, um, and the bird maybe is saying something like, "What's your heartbreak?" Mm. You know, I, it, totally, I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. So, in what way did you find? The, the process of being with your father inciting joy? You know, precisely because it was this experience of um, one, like I said, sort of a, a rehabilitation in a way of this relationship where, where, you know, like I said, like, you know, my dad was a good dad. He was like, he was, <laughs> he was, he was, he did his, he did his best, you yeah. know, like in a beautiful, complicated, heartbroken dude you know, um, who loved, loved the hell out of me and my brother and my mom, you know, he's just like, um, but we, you know, but we like, you know, in some ways I think we were, you know, alike, you know, my mother thinks we were very much alike in Mm. certain ways and we, and we struggled, we really struggled. Um, but that last five months, not that we, and I talked about this in the essay, not that we like sort of intentionally like said, okay, let's, let's, uh, <laughs> we didn't go to therapy. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. We didn't go to therapy, uh-huh. but we just, we just took care of one another. You know, mm-hmm. or actually I took care of him. And like I said, and he allowed me to take care of him. And mm-hmm. it was, I drove him to his treatments. You know, I tried to get him to eat when he, when he, you know, couldn't eat. Um, we watched stupid TV <laughs> together. Yeah. Um, and in those five months, you know, um, I I know my relationship with him began to change profoundly, and it continues to change to this day. You know, not to mention the fact that there are all of these other ways that 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 heartbreak has sort of um, incited other aspects of care, like my mother and my relationship is is has changed because of that and has deepened and has become one more explicitly of care, I would say, on my part, on my part. My mother's always been about care for me. <laughs> mm. But I feel like I, um, in a certain kind of way, was was blessed to understand my mother's heartbreak and my mother's vulnerability um, and my mother's sorrow, which includes, you know, most acutely, I think, in my relationship to her, her father. But that's not it, you know? To sort of be able to understand, oh, right, my mother, who, you know, is the kind of, you know, not the kind of, is the source of my life and in that way has this kind of power, um, is also vulnerable and frail and mm. heartbroken and devastated daily, mm. daily, you know, mm. just like I am. A lot of this conversation reminds me of, of a word we explored with a, another writer. Her name is Susan Cain, and, and she has a book out called Bittersweet. And I, I, I almost wonder if the way you describe joy and bittersweetness are somehow interrelated here, that there needs to be darkness along with the light in order to produce these, these really beautiful and complicated emotional states. Complicated, I think, is the word. That's mm. right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of like, I feel like <laughs> one of my, the, the mantras in my head is like complicated, you huh. know? complicated because it feels like yeah we want to imagine things to be very simplistic and like we want it we want to either imagine things imagine things simply sad or simply gleeful or something yeah and i i understand that because it 
the dream of a sort of life without sorrow is a it's it's a dream, you know. But I think it's also actually a nightmare um, because I think to forget that sorrow is a part of our lives means to forget that we are connected to, to each other. Mm-hmm. It's, it's simple as that. Like if you love anything, you will sorrow, you know. If you love people, if you love the trees, if you love the soil, if you love, you know, whatever, um, you are going to sorrow. It is, it is uh, I say something in the book about like, unless you're enlightened, you know. And, and <laughs> the Buddha under the tree. I don't know what you do. <laughs> yeah, right. But that ain't me. Right, yeah. No, it, it's true. And I, you know, I think of the fact that being human requires us to hold conflicting emotional states at the same time you know like if when somebody dies i could think of someone like my mother that i i love her but there are also still moments of thinking of her that make me feel angry or make me feel upset and we want to pretend that things get wrapped up in these really neat ways just as you say so we can we can either be purely in a grief state or purely in a happy state. But I think that's, that's true. This is a really difficult part of, of being human. I think you're so right. I think you're so right. I often think, <laughs> um, not all the time, but, but regularly I think, you know, the things about me that are like um, the most annoying, but like annoying on steroids, <laughs> some of them, when I die, you know, the people who love me will be like, Man, that sucked. But God, I love you know. I love that dude. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You said that um, joy almost needs to become a practice, something that we need to learn. Can Can you say more about that? Well, that's you know, that's one of the the real kind of um, inquiries of this book, I think. And um, um, I am really curious. It's for that. Yeah, I think joy needs. I think I think of joy as a practice, and you know, it's funny because when I had the the last book, it's called the Book of Delights, and it's mm. a collection of essays. Every day, I wrote an essay about something that delighted me, and I sort of thought about it at first as a discipline, which I think appealed to me because you know I came up as like an athlete and stuff, and but then I started thinking of it as like no, it's a practice, which appeals to me in a different way as an athlete, mm. um, but also in a kind of spiritual endeavor. So. I kind of carry that over to this idea with joy, or I think about it also when I'm thinking about joy, because I think that one of the things that that we're, you know, when I'm when I'm thinking about joy, when I'm thinking about us, trying, you know, possibly doing is to, like I said, sort of be curious about the ways that those tethers between us, that sort of fundamental, foundational connection between us, which is. Um, many things, among which, like I said, that we die and that everything we love um, will also die or change or whatever the word is. And from that, the kind of light, the kind of care that might emanate. I'm curious about these different kinds of practices that seem or, yeah, practices that seem to provide a kind of structure where that's always happening. <clears throat> or where that might be happening. And so I talk about these different kind of um, places. I talk about, you know, pick up basketball as a site where joy, it, where, I don't know how to say it quite yet, but like the structures of joy or something yeah. are in practice or are being built. By which I mean that in pick up basketball, again, I'm like sort of adamantly not talking about basketball with refs or coaches. Um, I'm talking about basketball where a handful of people 
come together at a court that no one owns um, and negotiate second by second the ways that they're going to play that day together. Mm. Um, And that when the next team comes on, the negotiation happens again. And there are all of these rules inside of basketball, uh, pick up basketball, that are not really written down, that are understood, that in a way preserve this first thing, which is that we're going to figure out how to be together. I talk about skateboarding as a practice. And part of what I'm talking about in skateboarding is that there's these premises. One of them is that if you have extra stuff, trucks, wheels, bearings, etc., you share it. And if you don't share it, it's 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 not good. <laughs> and then the next thing is that skateboarders always remind us that those who think they own everything, maybe they don't. You know, skaters trouble the idea of private property. Skaters trouble the idea of like who's allowed inside and who's not. You know, who's allowed in spaces and who's not. Um, the gardening, of course, is is a play. Uh, gardening is a is a kind of practice that I think of as also deeply um, one of these one of these places where you can kind of see joy in action. And one of the things that I think, in addition to being perpetually reminded that we are indebted forever, we are only made possible by virtue of the kindness of the earth, so that we are always, if we're working on it, in gratitude to the earth. Um, it also shows us that there's a kind of abundance that the earth provides us abundance you know like if you grow zucchini um most people who grow zucchini if you get lucky you get too many zucchini and then pretty much everyone again unless you're like a total nut shares those zucchinis it's just like how it goes as a gar- as a gardener and i sort of make the raise the question of like oh i think it's probably the case that we share when we're gardening when we're gardeners because the earth is showing us how to share. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful point. And I also, I, I love the examples of basketball. And I was, by the way, a bad Division Three basketball player. You hey! know that about me. <laughs> and uh, You know what I mean. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And because, because because a bad Division three basketball player is a very good basketball player. <laughs> let, me, let me be the one to say that. The bad Division three basketball player walks onto most courts and is one of the best players on the court. Well, I appreciate it. It doesn't feel that way anymore. But I, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. And but I but I, I, I also love thinking about the, the comparison too of, of basketball and skateboarding and that you know there's there are a certain set of rules or there's a certain form or there's a certain context in which these things exist. And there's also something that I love about the pickup basketball game and the skateboarding. And and I say this in the most complimentary way and that they're both kind of frivolous in a great way. They're about play. They're about uh, something that's not going to add up to making money. There's something else going on there that I find is really important. Yes, you nailed it. And that's like, that should be another chapter of the book. Um, joy and play. Um, because I think in addition to these sort of what I think of as like, you know, um, radical um, endeavors to share, to um, remake the commons, to not claim territory, you know, and pick up basketball. Like you can, you can only call next game. You can't call the next five. Mm. 
you know, there are all of these things that I that, you know, I mean, they're reasonable, but in our kind of uh, in they're reasonable, but in the way that we mostly live now, they seem radical. Um, but also this thing of play, which, you know, is is, um, you know, what I understand of play. <laughs> I'm not like a theorist of play. But one of the things that play requires we do is to always be um, curious. It's to sort of understand that as much as we know, we also don't know. And we have to sort of submit to and, um, and dance with what we don't know. And when we dance with what we don't know together, maybe that's another kind of yeah. opportunity for joy. You know, That's a new chapter in the book. There that's we cool. go. We got two new chapters. Yeah. Um, but no, and, and I, I, I'm sorry. I, now I'm just really thinking about pickup basketball. Sorry, listeners, if you don't play basketball, but I got to stay with this for a little bit. But yeah. just, you know, I, I go back to almost one of the first things you read us, which is uh, how we are culturally, and I think this is also financially or the way that the economics of marketing works, which is that we are generally focused on the things in which we do not agree on. And yeah. we use those as these defining points between us. But but suddenly it seems almost just radically beautiful, the idea of a group of people showing up on a court that no one owns just to celebrate what they do love, which is a sport like basketball. Or And, and you may have nothing in common with the people that are playing in that game, right? That's what's interesting. You may not even like them outside of the court, but in that moment, something is happening in which you're playing together, which is still it. just strikes me as, as really wonderful. It's incredible. It's incredible. And it's like you've probably you've been on teams or you've been on, you know, courts where you're on the team with someone who you, you kind of don't like. Of course. And yeah. and but that person, for whatever reason, they know exactly how to feed you right where you want it, right yeah. in your shop pocket. They know how to do it better than anyone else. And right. Right. it softens you to that person. <laughs> but also there's this other kind of structure in pickup basketball, which is that you know, because, you know, the team that loses usually sits down and then they wait to play next mm. for those of you listeners who do not play basketball. And then that those those um, those people, the teams are con constantly being reconfigured so that even if you thought you had an enemy for a second, if someone like made you look bad or someone was not nice to you or like to me, I remember a kid because I wasn't a good <laughs> shooter i remember a kid who would always say let ross shoot uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> God, that worked on me uh -huh. um but you know the next game we're gonna be on the same team mm -hmm. or two games down or three games down or tomorrow we're gonna be on the same team so it does not accommodate these sort of rigid boundaries of inside and out us and them it just doesn't do it you know if you're just joining us, this is Life Examined on KCRW. My guest this hour is Ross Gay, poet, essayist, and professor of English at Indiana University. And we're discussing his collection of essays and poems called Inciting Joy. When we come back, the delights and challenges of gardening. Ross Gay explains how being a good gardener can help you have a better understanding of life. You can stay connected to me directly and ask questions about this show on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastian can also stay connected to the show by finding us on Facebook. You can find a link to that at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined, where you'll also find a full archive of our shows. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. 
Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard poet and writer Ross Gay share some of his surprising perspectives on finding joy, taking care of his sick father and playing pickup basketball, and how the discovery of joy through sorrow has impacted how he goes about living his own life. Gay goes on to share poignant details caring for his father, how he'd noticed the littlest of actions, his reading, his smile, and his interest in researching his family tree. We rejoin the conversation as I ask Ross Gay about why gardening has become such an important part of his life. What did he learn from tending the land? Well, bring us back to to your garden, because I know that's another thing that, that you have written about in the Book of Delights, but also maybe there's more to say about how you understand joy or inciting joy playing out there. I, I'd love anything else you could say about it, because I know this is such a, this is a big part of your life. Yeah, it really is. It really is. You know, um, I guess there's a couple things that, that I would say. And one is that, and this is, this is becoming every day more and more um, evident to me, is that um, gardens are these sites of sharing, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they show us, like I said before, they show us the sort of bounty of the earth. If we spend a little bit of time and if we don't, if we do not approach them, um, as like war zones, if we're not like spraying Roundup and, you know, trying to destroy what we don't want in, which is kind of like that joy thing, you know, actually, Mm. you know, joy allows um, what we have to contend with into the garden. Um, It understands that it's going to be in the garden and it's and it's fruitless to sort of uh, war against it. So anyway, if we garden in a sort of um, way that is not um, not a warring way, we get to see there's constantly, constantly these sort of interactions that are going on, you know, whether it be, um, you know, the the bees pollinating all the things that they, all the plants that they pollinate, which is constant. Or in my garden, I don't like to say my garden anymore. In the garden, there's, um, you know, the sun, We you know, we grow sunflowers and the goldfinches will eat those sunflower seeds and they will replant them for us. So I never have to plant sunflowers because goldfinches plant sunflowers for us. (laughs) This is constant. You know, there are 10,000 things. If you talk about the the way that the soil is working, it's just once you spend a little bit of time watching things, you know, um, the way that the beans are running up those sunflowers, they're growing up the sunflowers and the beans are sort of like um, at the top of these, some of these 12 foot sunflowers, just like, reaching out and being held by these sunflowers. It's constant. And it makes it clear and obvious that the job of the garden, which is a site of sharing, um, or our, our job as gardeners in the garden, um, which is a site of sharing, is to continue the sharing. It's just like so obvious. So as I said, like once you get extra, you share. It's simple. And when other people have extra and they want to share, you accept it. It's very simple. So in a way, I think of the garden as kind of like a site or a, a practice zone or something something you might call mutual aid or something like that. The other thing about a garden is that that I just, you know, more and more day, day by day, I'm more and more moved by this, is that 
every seed that we grow, you know, or so many of the seeds that we grow, we should say, were brought forward um, by other people. They were preserved for our benefit. It's just like another one of the many examples of people who didn't know us loving us, you know? Mm -hmm. People hundreds of years ago, they didn't know us, but they loved us. And how did they love us? They brought us these seeds. They preserved these seeds because they loved these seeds or because these seeds were tolerant of a certain climate or because they were the seeds were given to them by someone who loved them. So it's just kind of this, uh, this archive of care. There is another really great chapter in which you talk about, um, about a family reunion in Detroit. And I, I wonder if you could share a little bit about that and what it meant to gather generations and some of the themes you were pulling at. Yeah, it's, um, it's at the end of this gardening essay, um, actually. And, and it's, um, it's one of the things that I sort of am wondering about, um, thinking about how gardens show us our connection, you know, mm. ultimately show us that we're connected. Um, and, and might um, incite us to be more connected, um, might incite us to see that. But at the end of this garden, I'm sort of like, um, at the end of this essay, I'm talking about, I'm reminded of this family reunion um, where this one was in Detroit and, you know, our folks came up from Port Gibson, um, Mississippi and Osceola, Arkansas and, you know, you know, fleeing effectively from um, the Jim Crow South. Um, it's my father's side of the family. And, you know, they were all there and we're like doing the, you know, the talent show and, you know, there's the riverboat tour and Uncle Bennett's dancing better than like his, uh, mm. <laughs> his nephew who's like, mm -hmm. you know, 40 years younger than him and everything else. And, um, but the, the one, the one thing. I mean, one of the things that I'm sort of remind. I'm thinking about the family reunion as a, as a, as a, as a, as a sort of again another sort of archive of care, actually, mm -hmm. um, an archive of uh, generational care. Um, but I'm also thinking of this this moment where it's as happy as I've seen my father, you know. Um, and I, I've seen my father happy plenty, but this was as happy as I've seen him. And we were driving into Detroit, going to the hotel, and some. I was driving the car and my dad's reading, he was always reading, um, in the passenger seat and we were at a stoplight and some dude in a truck pulls up and is looking at us and eventually my dad kind of looks at him and they look at each other and then they just start smiling and they kind of like yell, we can, we can, you know. Mm. <laughs> and even as I, as I, I get so, I get so goddamn happy to think of my father that happy like that, you know, yeah. it just makes me so glad. What do you think was happening in your father? What was he feeling? What, what was it about bringing these people together, these different generations, this shared history that, that might have brought something alive in him? Well, you know, my dad was, um, you know, he was, uh, he was, you know, just like the rest of us. He was such a complicated dude. And there was, um, he was really sort of hurt, I think, um, for any number of reasons, and I wish he was alive. I can speculate plenty of them, but I wish he was alive so I could be like, why were you so, what precisely hurt you? Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I can make some guesses. Um, but his his life was this fairly 
I would say like so many of us is a, was a fairly alienated life. Like he moved away from his family for work. Yeah. You know, he was a, you know, worked at like Burger King and Pizza Hut and Red Lobster and stuff. Um, he, so he was far from his family. His work itself was alienating, you know, he was fired several times, you know, it's just like this kind of regular, um, miserable um, work. Mm. Um, he was broke. So, you know, we were broke. So we were sort of like hustling and kind of scared always in a way. And I think, and you know, this is a thing my mother reminded me of is that my father toward the end of his life started um, trying to fill out the family tree. Mm. And I have my, my dad's brother who's alive. He's the one of the three brothers who's still alive. He's more who, um, he's more who I would expect to be doing that work, you know, um, and, and he and I have actually talked about sort of uh, genealogical stuff. But I completely forgot that my dad, who had more distance actually from, we're from Youngstown, um, Ohio. We were born, I was born in Youngstown. My dad's from Youngstown. I grew up outside of Philadelphia. Yeah. But my father had more sort of distance from Youngstown. And there was a, a certain kind of, um, to some extent, I think he was probably, you know, running away from something, you know. Mm. There was there was some some sort of site of pain that he was maybe maybe again I'm speculating I don't know um, but that he was toward the end of his life trying to fill out the family tree and trying to sort of remember who were all of these people um, who came together effectively to make him is is really moving to me you know to know like who again to know who it is who loved you um many of whom you do not know most of you know of course most of whom you have no idea um and my father who like i said i would say like so many people lived a fairly alienated life a life separated from um whatever you'd call it just say connection you know um that toward the end of his life, he was really wanting to know who he was connected to, who he did belong to. That's so moving to me. So I suspect that what I was seeing in his face was a kind of glimmer of like, oh, we belong to one another. Yeah, and I'm really moved thinking about, you know, we've all seen a family tree, which is just a series of names on paper and ink and, you know, directions moving up and down. But the way you describe it there reminds me that it's it's kind of a, a history of love in a way, isn't it? Yeah. It, yeah. it? It's not just names. It, it's actual, yeah, it's 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 partnerships and and people that, that came together in, in moments of bliss, but um, heartache and everything else. Exactly, exactly. Many of whom survived, you know, like, I mean, all of many, many of whom, like when I say survived, many of whom, you know, like came through it, mm-hmm. you know, to the extent that they did, if they did, you know, and that when I look at my family tree, my, you know, on my father's side, um, I, I think of, oh, oh, a lot of you all escaped, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's part of how I got here. When you say escaped, can you, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I mean, like, you know, being a sharecropper in Mississippi, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, being a, being in a, uh, an apartheid state. That's what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind sharing just kind of what, what that means to you, 
reflecting on a family that's been through that process and, and how that shows up in your in this book or in your work? You know, um, again, it's sort of like one of these uh, profoundly, like, it, you know, it's like another moment where I feel immense gratitude um, um, for who has given me my life, you know, and for what um, they've endured to give me my life, you know. Um, and it, I think in a way that's sort of the thing, like, and I'm very, I'm, you know, I'm very curious about that, you know, but, but, you know, I was just gonna say like a kind of epigenetic, um, <laughs> Thing. Like what? What is it that, that these these people have provided me through the years? And among the things, you know, because we often talk about epigenetic trauma. That's a that's yes. a thing that we talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think about epigenetic joy because it's also the case that you know um, that in addition to sort of surviving, yeah. <laughs> um, people were surviving, you know? So, yes. You know what I mean? So it's sort of like, I am the inheritor of many things. And among those things, you know, I got my epigenetic heads up. I think I see that in the book. <laughs> but I also have my epigenetic, you belong to people. You have been loved. You are in the, you are in the moment. You are in this moment being loved. You are being cared for. You have been beloved from before you came here. Um, that also feels like a kind of, that's, that's one of the, that's actually the, that's the biggest part in that, in that suitcase that I carry around. You know, this, this is a, I think a a beautiful point. And, and we recently did a segment about, and, and bear with me here for just one second. It was about the history of, of black or African-American philanthropy in the United States and how it wasn't so much early on about the giving of huge amounts of money, but really it was about the giving of love and time and about the ways in which those that were enduring those circumstances were also some of the most giving to each other and to their community. And I thought it was, it was a really beautiful description. And it reminds me a lot of what you're saying now, that that was the currency that won Delton. Yeah, I mean, we know this from experience. Um, the people who have all the... You know, I'm not going to curse, but I want to curse. The people who have all the stuff, for the most part, keep all the stuff. Hmm. But which is not actually how we mostly are. Mostly how we are is that we share, yeah. and um, so it makes sense to me what you're what you're saying is that the the normal ways of tending to one another, um, or the normal ways of being, is to tend to one another, and to be looking out for one another, and to be like you know, I was just visiting with my um, aunt Butter, who's um, one of the, the last, she's in her 90s, she's one of the last of this generation, and my Aunt, aunt Butter. And she's just constantly wanting me to meet my family. And which is not a thing, I think, two generations beneath, three generations beneath her, we're kind of always thinking about. Mm-hmm. But my Aunt Butter is like, you need to, you need to know you belong to people. And you need to be prepared to care for people, you know, and to be cared for. And that's, it's sort of like, a, again, it's a sort of easy thing to forget in this, in this, 
in this, what I would say in this world that sort of drives us into a kind of alienation that wants us to be alienated from one another. Um, because then we become dependent on institutions and we become dependent on um, the, the benevolence of the people who hoard everything. <laughs> when in fact, if we're, if we're dependent on each other, we're going to be all right. You know, we'll be all right. You know, I think that's what they're teaching us. And I think we, you look at, you look at how people survive. That's sort of what, what you see again and again and again. It's not, it's not for the most part, the benevolence of uh, who's pulling the levers. It's each other. Well, Ross, I, I, I'd love to end with, with a reading and, and maybe we can just, as we started with the beginning of the book, uh, we can now jump to the end. So tell us, tell us what we have. Yeah, this is, um, this is from the last essay in the book. And it's, um, it's actually an essay about gratitude, joy and gratitude. Um, though it feels also like a, to some extent, an essay about joy and refusal. But let's say joy and gratitude. That's what it's called. It's the final incitement in the book. And this is, this is the end of it, actually. And I mentioned the, uh, the writer, the amazing poet and nonfiction writer, Toy Derricotte, in here. I think that's what the writer Toy Derricott means in her poem, The Telecycle, when she says that, quote, joy is an act of resistance, end quote. The luminous mycelial tethers between us, our fundamental connection to one another, the raft through the sorrow, the holding through the grief joy is, reminds us again and again that we belong not to an institution or a party or a state or a market, but to each other, needfully so, which we, which we must practice and study and sing and story and dream and celebrate, belonging to each other as though our lives depended on it. And when we sing like that, oh my heart, what then? Oh, my heart, it's a real question. My heart, what then? My guest this hour has been Ross Gay. He's a professor at Indiana University and the author, most recently, of Inciting Joy. Ross, somehow we, we've talked about basketball, life, death, skateboarding, gardens. Uh, I, I, I've loved this. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. It's so fun to talk to you. That's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. And if you want to hear more of Roske on the show, check out our interview in September of 2023, where Roske dives more fully into the theme of grief. It's a powerful interview, and we hope you'll check it out. You can connect with me directly on Instagram, where you can find weekly reels, and you can also ask me questions. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastian. You can also connect with other listeners on Facebook. You can find a link to that community at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. And that's also where you can check out our full archive. Don't miss the Midweek Reset every Wednesday in your podcast feed. Once again, I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks for joining us on Life Examined. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you soon.